The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Now, we will go to God's Word, and like I said, we'll be in Luke 13. So let's go there. We're picking up in our series in the Gospel of Luke, and today we are following up. This is part two of what we looked at last week in Luke 13, verses 22 to 30. And this story goes together, a real event that happened in the life of Jesus Christ in his ministry. Probably in the last, he had a three and a half year ministry from age 30 until he died about age 33. Spent most of his time in his home area up there in the north in Galilee, preaching the gospel to every village over the course of two and a half years. And now he's headed to the cross in Jerusalem going down south, traveling slowly, going from village to village. Now he's in the vicinity of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. That's where we are now in Luke 13. Like I said, it's anywhere from the last six to three months of Jesus' ministry. So his death is imminent pretty much, and he is truly focused on that. That's why he was born. Jesus was born to die. He came to die as a substitute for sinners. He came to die willingly on the cross, the execution implement for criminals, even though Jesus did nothing wrong, he never sinned, and yet he suffered that fate willingly, dying on the cross and was crucified publicly. He was hanging on that cross for six hours at least that day, fulfilling scripture that predicted that the Messiah would be sent by Yahweh God to die as the Lamb of God, as a substitute for sinners. Jesus knew that. That's what he was doing. He did it on one of the most important feast days of Israel, Passover. When you slaughtered the innocent lamb, Jesus gave his life as the innocent lamb, fulfilling prophecy. Dying for sin as a substitute, but most importantly, absorbing the wrath of the Father, because that's what was happening. It was invisible, it couldn't be seen, although there were manifestations of it, of when Jesus was on the cross dying, all of a sudden the skies turned black, pitch black. That was God the Father, showing that he hates sin. He must curse sin with death. And Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, was abandoned as a substitute sinner, even though he never did anything wrong the night he died on the cross. And and Jesus absorbed the wrath of the Father that was directed towards sinners and that was deserved. And then Jesus died, was buried, rose again from the dead, having conquered death and then ascended back into heaven and reigns as king of kings and lord of lords. Now in his calling all sinners to come to him, to repent, to bow the knee, to recognize him as the only king, the only lord, the only savior, the only way to heaven, the only way to the father, the only way to be made right in this life, the only way to be made right back with the creator, that's through Jesus Christ. He's wooing people, literally, through his sovereignty, through the Holy Spirit who's working on every heart, through their conscience, continually convicting them of sin and also using the word of God, the truth of the Bible, especially when Christians are obedient and they get the word out, the objective truth of God's word and who Jesus is and the Holy Spirit works in sync with this objective truth on the heart and mind of every sinner, convicting them of sin, giving them a true interpretation of reality that they have Abandon their creator, their enemies of God, children of wrath, can't save themselves, and must repent and come to Christ, who is the only Savior. And they can't do anything to earn their salvation. They can't do anything to earn forgiveness of sin. Doing religion won't do it. It's one thing. It's bowing the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, who's not just the Savior, but was the creator with the Father, the creator. As a result, every soul is accountable to Jesus Christ as creator. Every soul, when they die, every person, the moment they die, they land up in front of the the Lord Jesus Christ as the judge. And immediately a verdict is rendered. And you're consigned either to eternal heaven or eternal hell. And it's based on one thing, and that was, what did you do with Jesus Christ in this life? Based on the conscience that every person has, they know God exists and they're accountable to him. And also, 
in light of the objective truth that they are given during the course of their life about the Lord Jesus Christ. So no human being is without excuse when they die, as they stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. One verdict. You either believe and embrace the Son, acknowledging your sin, or you reject him, making yourself Lord, and then that's when you're either consigned to eternal hell forever or blessedness in heaven for all eternity with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus, all the saints and all the angels. That is the message of the Bible. That is the message of Christianity. That is the message that Jesus preached nonstop for three and a half years. And that's the message that we see reflected again, another iteration today in Luke 13. Let's look at it, verses 22 to 30. As Jesus was passing through from one city and village to another, like I said, going down towards Jerusalem and Perea, and that's, he's going from city to city, village to village, trying to get as many people as he can to hear the truth of the gospel of the kingdom. Teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And we talked about this last week, how crowds were following him everywhere He went and got to some point, and someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And Jesus said to them, that's the audience, everybody that was there, Jesus said, strive, struggle, fight, is the proper translation. Fight to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. For once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up for us. Then he, the master, will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and we drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And the master will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out, and they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. As Luke recounts this history, Luke probably writing in 60 AD, which would be about 25 years after this actually happened. Luke was the associate of the Apostle Paul, and he's writing a very specific, detailed history of the ministry, the person in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Matthew had already written uh, about Jesus' life and ministry maybe 20, 15 to 20 years earlier. So Matthew, who lived with Christ, was a disciple, was an eyewitness, maybe for three years. So it could very well be that Luke had Matthew, either his gospel or even Matthew as a person, as one of his eyewitnesses to give an account of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can have confidence that this is true history. This is exactly what happened. This is a conversation that took place. This very well summarizes the ministry of Jesus and the very things that he said to the people. And also Luke was led by the Holy Spirit to guarantee that it has been preserved for us faultless, without error, completely authoritative. It is the word of God. So with that mindset, we can look at it and feed our souls on the very word of God. We're reading the thoughts of God, the mind of God, the history of God as he has orchestrated the teachings and the words of Jesus Christ himself. Just how refreshing that is, especially gathering on the Lord's Day. That's why it's such a blessing to gather with God's people on the Lord's Day, to have fellowship and be stimulated to one another Uh, stimulating one another with good deeds, encouraging. That's Hebrews. That's one of the reasons you go to church, to be with God's people, is for the fellowship and to be encouraged. You're supposed to leave. If you're a Christian, you're supposed to leave church on Sunday encouraged. 
That's God's design. That's his blessing and intent for you. And the other major reason is we come here to meet God, to worship him, but also to hear him through his word. And he speaks nothing but truth. And that's Jesus here. Everything Jesus says is pure truth. And that's food for our soul. And it's refreshing after living six days right out in the world where you hardly hear any truth. That's why what Jesus says seems so alarming and shocking and antagonistic and contrarian that everything Jesus says is virtually the exact opposite and contrary to what is in the world. So if you wonder sometimes, wow, when I read the newspaper, I feel like everything I read, I disagree with. Everything I read troubles me. Everything I read, what is wrong with me? Nothing is, probably. If you're a Christian and you believe the word of God and you believe the words of Christ because uh, the world is in 180 degrees opposite of the truth. They spin everything with a lie. So that's why it's so refreshing to come and hear the words of Jesus. That was just a thought that dominated as I reread this passage this week. Because Jesus didn't say a whole lot in this passage, but what he did is stunning. Some of it just uh, makes you take a step back and you lose your breath for a second and say, Wow, this is not said in the world. This is not politically correct. This would not be acceptable. Whoa, this would make people offended. But you know that's what Jesus did. He just spoke truth. And truth in a fallen world, it offends. But for the Christian, it's food to our soul. It is refreshing. Meat and milk to the spiritual bones, says Peter. So just don't want to lose that perspective as we're going through this. These aren't just the words of man. This is, these are the very thoughts and words and eternal life-changing truth of God that we have the privilege of just soaking it in and then asking the Holy Spirit to change our life by starting with changing how we think. And that's what we want scripture to do is inform our thinking so that it is godly, so that it is biblical, so that it is true. We have a great challenge with that today. Basically what we have here, if I were to just summarize this passage because there's so much here, I'm going to summarize the main point of this passage for you up front in the event that we run out of time. (laughs) What was the main point of that passage? It's actually really simple. And it it develops, definitely. You can't just read the first three verses, 22, 23, and 24, and think you have the passage. The whole passage goes together, 22 to 30. It's somewhat complex, and there is a development of thought and progress of thought that culminates in verse 30. That's why it's all got to go together. That's why I said last week, the summary of this passage is not that few will be saved. That is not the main point. That is one of the points that's not the main point. That doesn't encapsulate everything that Jesus is teaching here. It's a truth. It's one of the truths, because like I said last week, one of the truths also from this passage is that many will be saved. I don't know if you caught that when I read it, but it was there if you were paying attention. Many will be saved. So in answer to the guy's question that prompted this whole interchange was some spontaneous person out there in the audience just butted in Jesus' teaching and ministry and asked him, Lord, are there only a few who will be saved? And Jesus didn't say, yes, only a few will be saved. He didn't say that. Or he didn't say, no, many will be saved. He answered in a different way. Fight! You, fight! Fight for your salvation. But in the passage, uh, the question is answered by Jesus. Yes, a few will be saved. He does say that. No, many will be saved. He also says that. And then he takes the question even further and he personalizes it for the person who asked the question and everybody else in the audience, of the more important truth. Don't be worried. See, that's a safe question when you ask, uh, Lord, will few people be saved? That's impersonal. It's kind of innocuous. You won't be threatened by the answer. Because, like I said, it's a stat. How many people will be saved? How many people are going to hell? And then if you just answer the question, yeah, uh, many people will go to hell. Few people are saved. That's not really affecting the person that answered the question. So that's why it's innocuous. It's, it's non-threatening. And, and Jesus turns it personal. On this guy that asked the question. He says, I'm not going to initially answer your innocuous question. Uh, that's kind of irrelevant. Uh, that's the sovereign discretion of God of how many people get saved. Let me tell you what's really important. And that is, let's talk about you. Basically, what Jesus was saying, are you saved? Do you even know how to get saved? 
Are you striving to be saved? Are you fighting to be saved? Are you struggling to be saved? Is that a priority in your life? That's what Jesus is saying. And if you had a, I'd say a two-point outline of this passage, just to kind of bring it all together, we, we did point one last week, and that was verses 22 to verse 24, and that's strive. That's a command, that's an imperative, strive. You need to strive to be saved. Strive to enter the narrow gate. That is a command. We're obligated to do it. We will be held accountable for that when we die and we breathe our last. We're before the Lord Jesus Christ in glory. That's one thing we'll have to answer to. Did you strive after the truth, after me, after the narrow door, after my demands, after what I require? Or did you just kind of float through life passively, letting life take you kind of like just a leaf on a River just floating along, going with the flow, nonchalant, aimlessly, without purpose, which is how a lot of people live life, sadly. They're not deliberate. They don't care. Jesus said, don't do that. So that's point number one, was strive. It's a command. And then point number two, which we'll look at today, and that's verses basically 25 to 30, and that is... So it's a strive, and part two is or else. Strive or else. Because that's what Jesus says in verses 25 to 30 is the or else. There, there is a consequence if you do not strive after God, the right way, through the narrow door, through Jesus Christ, through repentance, bowing the knee, recognizing your, your sin and your need. If you don't do that in this life. So verses 22 to 24 is about what you do in this life. Verses 25 to 30 is about what happens in the next life, what could happen in the next life, especially if you don't submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it's or else. Strive or else. And 25 through 30 is nothing but uh, the possible consequence of anybody who rejects Jesus Christ in this life. That's the theme. It's one answer given in a few different ways. So let's go ahead and look at it. Uh, and we'll just to, we'll go to the nexus there, verse 24, the hinge in this passage when Jesus answered who's going to be saved. Oh, he said strive. Uh, just first, uh, by way of reminder, verse 23 is the catalyst of this whole passage because it was the question, who is, uh, are there a few going to be saved? And saved is a key word. Because Jesus, in response, even though he answers the question of who will be saved or how to be saved, he actually never uses the word saved. But after three years of ministry, everybody knows who's familiar with the ministry of Jesus. He came to do one thing, and that was save. Luke will say that later in this book. Jesus came to save. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. And this person that asked the question was probably Jewish because that was the crowd that Jesus was with. That's who he's ministering to. Uh, And so a Jew would understand that this guy's claiming to be the Messiah. The Messiah, according to the Old Testament, is coming to do one thing, and that is save people, and part of that is saving them spiritually from their sins. So I think they pretty much had all a common understanding of what the word saved meant and everything that is attached to it. This isn't just temporal salvation, being rescued from something physical in this life, like being, being saved from being drowned or something like that. They know there's a spiritual connotation here. That's what Jesus claimed to be, the Savior of the world, the one who could forgive sin. That's what saved means. And so if I were to ask you as a Christian, what what does it mean to be saved in this context? What are we saved from? What are we saved from? No doubt some of you would say, well, we're saved from the world, because there are passages that say that, this evil, fallen, wicked world. That's true. We're saved from the world. We're saved from the devil or Satan and his demons. That's true. Prior to being saved, uh, we're children of the devil in his domain. So we are rescued and saved from the devil. What else are we saved from? Uh, We're saved from, from hell, eternal hell. And that's also true. What else are we saved from? We're saved from our own personal sin. Not the presence of sin in us, but the penalty and the power of sin upon salvation and justification because of the Lord Jesus and his work, and we are forgiven of all of our sin. That's being saved from sin. We're saved also from the eternal consequences of sin. So there are many things we're saved, but here's the main thing that we are saved from, and maybe this popped into your head when I asked you, what are we saved from primarily? The main thing that we are saved from is God's wrath. 
I mean, think about that. God the Father saves us from his own wrath. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's the main thing we are saved from. And that's the main thing that Jesus endured when he was on the cross. He absorbed the eternal full fury of God's wrath that we might be saved from it. That's what it means to be saved. And that's Jesus' understanding of saved. But he's not going to use the word saved. He's going to use the word uh, the kingdom. To be saved is to be into the kingdom. That's verse 28 and verse 29. They are synonymous. To be saved means to be rescued by God, delivered by God, delivered out out of the domain of Satan and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. That is salvation. That's Colossians 1. So to be saved is to be adopted into the kingdom of God rescued and delivered into the kingdom of God. Being, what is the kingdom of God? It is the domain and the sphere of Jesus' reign and rule on a very personal and intimate level. If you're a Christian, you are saved. If you're saved, you're born again. If you're born again, you are redeemed and reconciled and right with God. And you are in the kingdom of God. You know Jesus Christ, the king, personally and have intimate, personal relationship with him, the king. That's what it means to be in the kingdom. And the kingdom is multifaceted. It starts now in this life. It starts at a spiritual level. It goes on throughout your whole life. It carries over into the future. It carries over into uh, a thousand years on earth during the millennial kingdom and then the eternal kingdom after the millennial kingdom. So that is the kingdom of God. But it starts at the spiritual, personal level when you understand and believe in the gospel. And that is synonymous with being saved. So Jesus does answer the question about who's being saved, and the nature of salvation. So uh, regarding strive, I didn't get to talk about this last week, but this whole passage is evangelistic and thrust. It's a great passage to inform and teach our soteriology. How's your soteriology doing, by the way? Uh, Soteriology, big word, logos, logi, study of soteria, salvation, soteriology, the study of salvation. If you go to seminary, you've got to take a class on soteriology. If you read a theology book, you've got to read about soteriology. The theology and the doctrine, the teaching of salvation according to the Bible. Jesus did it all the time. Did Jesus ever teach about soteriology? All the time, every, every time he opened his mouth, pretty much. All over the four Gospels. Here's, this is a soteriological passage. This is, there are truths about soteriology that we need to clearly understand here and then incorporate it into our whole Christian biblical worldview. And there are some wrong views out there. There are some deficiencies in typical Christian thinking in a lot of regards. One of them we talked about last week, and that was regarding soteriology or how to be saved, was the nature of the gospel and how somebody might be saved and how we have the modern contemporary evangelical gospel that is pretty surface. Just believe, raise your hand, walk the aisle. Say a prayer, and that's it. Just believe and don't repent. That's one. Those are all wrong. Or it's easy to be saved. Well, no, it's not. And we we talked about all that. And and Jesus, in his soteriology and his evangelistic approach, is very different. So we need to follow his model, and that helps us. And uh, that's one of the ways that we learn from Jesus is following his example. In your evangelism, how often have you ever done this? Somebody asked you about... How can I get to heaven? Strive! Fight! What? Pretty rare, huh? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Hate your parents. What? This is Jesus. We've seen it already in the Gospel of Luke, and here's another one. Strive, or strive fight, struggle. But this prompts a really important question that we didn't even get to address, and that is... so. Basically, somebody's inquiring about salvation, which prompts the question, well, how can I be saved? Because that's the question Jesus actually answers. Here's how you can be saved, which is the most important question for humanity, really. How can I get right with God? That's what it means to be saved. It's really simple, but there's a lot of confusion on it, a lot of misunderstanding. Here's two questions I just want to throw at you. Uh, Question number one, must a person do something to be saved? Must a person do something to be saved? And here's the corollary question. I think the questions are synonymous, but I've had debates with people who don't think so. (laughs) So we'll see what you think. 
The first one is, must a person do something to be saved? And then my next question is, can a person do something to be saved? I only changed two words, must and can. I've been asking seminary students this for 16, 17 years. Sunday school classes, every t- you know, when I have the opportunity to teach. And it's amazing. Inevitably, every time I get an answer that I think I don't necessarily agree with. Here, let's talk about that. Why did you answer that way? And usually I know what the problem is. Uh, many times when I ask, must a person do something to be saved, or specifically when I ask, can a person do something to be saved, I usually get several people who say, no, you can't do anything to be saved. And what are they doing? Well, they're trying to protect the sovereignty of God. They're trying to protect election, the doctrine of election. Is election in the Bible? Absolutely. Is it clear? Crystal. So that's admirable. We do want to protect a biblical truth that's so clear, and that's the doctrine of election. But still, you have to deal with the question here. Must a person do something to be saved in light of the dozens and dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of other Bible passages that seem to say something else? It's not exactly identical with this idea that, no, you must not do anything. You cannot do anything because of election, and God is completely sovereign. We don't do anything. And so so what do you do? Just kind of wait around passively, and God zaps you? <laughs> Saved. I guess so. We, you mean we don't exercise, because of election and God is sovereign, we don't exercise our will? We don't exercise our volition? Are we not volitional beings? Yes, we are. God is a person, and we were made in his image. We are made as persons. What does that mean? We have attributes that God has. God has emotions. We have emotions. God has intellect. We have intellect. God is a spiritual being. We are spiritual beings. God has volition. We have volition as human beings. The ability to choose, the ability to decide, and as a result, we are accountable for our decisions. That is clear in Scripture. God holds us accountable for our decisions and our actions. So that's key. You can't just take one doctrine like the doctrine of election and then just focus on one other thing or at the neglect of other truths that are just clear in Scripture. We're volitional beings. We're made in the image of God. We make decisions. We have a will. We are even implored by God to make decisions, to make commitments, and we are held accountable for those decisions, even with eternal consequences. So Must a person do something to be saved? Or can a person do something to be saved? I would answer absolutely to both of those questions. And at the same time, yeah, I believe in election, absolutely. And I believe God is totally sovereign in salvation. But nevertheless, you can't deny these clear truths. Uh, Just to give you a few examples from Scripture, let me show you uh, throughout Scripture. Because uh, the basic truth is that God and Jesus, even though salvation is from the Lord, like it says in Jonah chapter 4, salvation is from the Lord, great verse. Jonah chapter 4. He's the orchestrator of salvation, the initiator of salvation, the sustainer and institutor of salvation, the culminator of salvation. At the same time, God and Jesus all throughout the Bible demand or call people to do something. It's inescapable. We just read a passage, one of our elders here, Ezekiel 18. If you were paying attention, repent, turn, repent that you might live. God is pleading with people to make a decision to do something. It's all over the Bible. So must we do something to be saved? Absolutely. Uh, Genesis 15, 6. It says that Abraham believed. He exercised his volition. That was a response by Abram. God did, he's not a robot. God didn't make him get saved. God didn't act contrary to Abram's will. God never saves anybody in contrast to their will, apart from their volition. He doesn't violate our volition. So Abraham believed that was proactive. He made a decision. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. You know what that means? He got justified as a result of believing. Abraham did something, and he got saved. Uh, Exodus 12, fast forward. In the days of Moses, 1400 B.C., God is telling Moses, to tell all of the Israelites there in Egypt 
on the night of Passover, you need to do something. You need to do a lot. And here's one of the things you need to do, uh, Exodus 12. You need to get a lamb, slaughter it, get the blood, and put it on the doorpost. Anybody who slaughters the blood, puts it on the doorpost, then I will pass over, I will spare your life. You do something and you will be blessed as a result. God will withhold his hand of wrath. Joshua 24, 15. This is pretty much at the end of Joshua's ministry in 13... 50 B.C. when he called all the Israelites together and exhorted them and said, you need to turn from your idols. Otherwise, you'll incur the wrath of God. You will not be blessed. He just goes on the entire chapter 24 of Joshua, excoriating them for their compromise. Finally, they feel some conviction. And in Joshua 24, 15, Joshua says, choose for yourselves Today whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He literally uses the imperative choose, translated in English. Choose. You need to make a decision. And if you choose Yahweh, and if you choose obedience, you will be blessed. If you don't, you will be cursed. They had to do something. Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. Uh, There's several imperatives and commands there. And it says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come and drink. Everyone who is hungry, come, buy, eat, listen. If you do, you will be saved. All these imperatives, things you need to do. You need to thirst, you need to buy, you need to come, you need to listen. Uh, Matthew 3, 2, uh, the first sermon that John the Baptist ever preached, he said, repent. That's an action, that is a requirement, that's a demand, that's exercising your will, something you do on an individual basis. Repent so that you might be alleviated the wrath of to come. That was John the Baptist. Jesus' first public word in his ministry in Matthew 4.17, Jesus went preaching and the first word out of his mouth was, repent! That's a command. You must do something. Must I do something to be saved? Yes, you must repent at a minimum. And then through the Gospels, we'll see several people who get the rich young ruler and others who literally came to, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus did not say, oh, you're elect, don't worry about it. Or even worse, oh, you're not elect, you can forget about it. He didn't say that. They literally said, what must I do? And in response, Jesus gave them something to do. Matthew 4.19, Jesus looked at his first disciples. Follow me, that's a command. Uh, Mark 1.15 says, Jesus came uh, preaching and teaching, and his message was repent and believe in the gospel. That's calling people to do stuff. Repent and believe. Uh, The Gospel of John is just replete with these kind of demands, requirements, imperatives, calling people to do stuff to be saved. John 3.16, right? God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes, that's an action, that's something we do. If you believe, then you will what? You will be saved and receive eternal life and not suffer judgment and eternal hell, if you believe. Forgiveness is contingent upon believing, doing something. Uh, And then later on in John 3, great verse, whoever believes on the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, the wrath of God abides on him. Two imperatives, two action words, believe and obey. Must we do something to be saved? Yes. Believe, obey, repent, choose, buy, eat. Here's a zinger, John 6, 27. Jesus said, work, uh uh-oh. Well, I thought we didn't believe in works righteousness. Well, we don't, but Jesus said this anyway. John 6, 27. Work for the food which endures to eternal life. And the word for work there, ergazomai, literally means to acquire by labor and hard work. Acquire eternal life by labor and hard work but we don't believe in works righteousness. But Jesus explains in the same passage what work he's saying. Well, here's the work. Believe in me. That's the work. That's what you do. I'm asking you to do something, and here's what you do. You believe in me. You believe in my work. You don't work for your salvation. I work for your salvation. You believe that I did it for you. That's the work. But it's an action. You're accountable for it. John 6, 54. John 6 just has all kinds of uh, commands and imperatives, Jesus says, in order to believe Uh, And he says repeatedly, you need to eat my, I am the bread from heaven, you need to eat my flesh. You need to eat my flesh, you need to eat me. You need to drink my blood and drink my blood. He offended the entire crowd of Jews there. 
And then finally in John 6.54, he summarizes, summarizes by saying, Eat my flesh, drink my blood, and you will live forever. Those are commands. Those are things we do. Uh, Acts chapter 2, the church begins. Peter says, Call on the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. Uh, being saved is contingent upon calling upon the name of the Lord. Must we do something to be saved? Yes, we must call upon some, the, the Lord to be saved. And we must implore people, beckon people, plead with them, pray for them, remind them. They need to respond to the gospel when we give it to them. Paul did that, knowing the fear of the Lord, the terror of the Lord, I persuade men. As an evangelist, that's what he did. Peter preaches that sermon in Acts chapter 2, and there's thousands of Israelites there on the day of Pentecost. They aren't believers yet. They're all Jews. They knew who Jesus was. Peter preaches this amazing sermon, quotes scripture from the Old Testament, shows how Jesus fulfilled it all. Jesus uh, came to be the Savior. He ministered. He died on purpose, fulfilling the plan of God, dying for sin, buried and rose again for the dead. He reigns on high, and he's calling all people everywhere to basically repent and believe, and it says the, these Jews were pierced to the heart. They were convicted. That's chapter 2, verse 38 of Acts. Having been convicted or pierced to the heart, the men, uh, overwhelmed no doubt with guilt, they said, Peter, what must we do? What, was he, what were they asking? They were saying, what must we do to be saved? We've heard the truth. We've heard the gospel. We've heard the message. We've heard what God has already done. What do we do? How do we respond? Peter didn't say, oh, you're elect. Don't worry about it. Peter actually gave him something to do. First word was repent. That's what you need to do, repent. What does that mean? Repent means to, it's, actually there's several words for repent, but basically it means recognize that you're a sinner and be own, it, own up to it, that it has separated you from God the creator. It's an offense to God, and you're damned because of it. And you can't save yourself, and you need to turn from your sin. Turn away from your life and your sin, and turn to Christ and God. He's the only one that can save you. That's what repent means, to turn. That was probably the most offensive thing about Jesus' ministry and his message. He went around calling people to repent from sin. And they were self-righteous. They didn't think they needed to repent. That's why people get offended when you tell them the true gospel. It's not just, oh, Jesus is the Lord, he's the Savior, believe in Jesus. Most people will actually agree with that. The Bible's God's word. Oh, yeah, mm -hmm, I'm good. You need to honor Jesus with your life. Oh, yeah. You need to emulate Jesus. Uh-huh, I'm with you. But you need to repent from your sin. That is an offense to God. It's a stench in his nose, and it has separated you from him, and it could consign you to conscious, eternal, deserved hell forever. They don't like that. But that's part of the gospel message. That's what repent means. And that's what Peter said, repent. And then finally, Luke, uh, we've already seen this, Luke 9.23, talking about how to get saved. Jesus said, deny yourself. Deny yourself. Hate yourself. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Be willing to die. And follow me. That's how you get saved. Those are imperatives and actions. Uh, we already saw in Luke 12 where Jesus preached that sermon we just went through with all these imperatives, one imperative after another, after another, after another, after another, after another. If you were paying attention, you could just go back and look at all these imperatives. Uh, Jesus said, fear God, confess the Son, seek his kingdom, get ready, get right with God now. It was just filled with imperatives and responsibilities if you want to be right with God and be saved. I don't know, is that enough scripture for you? I've got many more. Uh, I think that makes the point for us. Here's just, so what do we need to do to, to be saved? Is there anything we need to do to be saved? Yes. Can I do something to be saved? Yes. What? Choose, turn, thirst, buy, eat, drink, work, follow, call, deny, take up, fear, confess, seek, strive, enter, do, believe, repent. At a minimum. And some of you still might be struggling because, boy, boy, i got to protect that. What about election? What about God's sovereignty? you got to take the whole Bible, the full counsel of God. So you don't have to leave today feeling guilty if you're a Calvinist, thinking, man, I don't want to be an Arminian. Well, you don't have to be. If it makes you feel better for Christmas, here's a Christmas present for you. Two quotes from three Calvinists. Who would agree with everything I just said? John Frame. Can't get even more Calvinistic than that. 
John Frame said, quote, We should not assume that because salvation is foreordained by God before the foundation of the world, that human decisions are of no consequence. Thank you, John Frame. And then 500 years ago, John Calvin, who I think was a Calvinist. <laughs> and then also quoted by John MacArthur, another Calvinist, quote, God does not save people against their will, end quote. Because we're not robots. We make decisions, and we're accountable for those decisions. So let's go back to Luke 13. Strive, strive. So now that Jesus made that point, we understand what he means. Strive after the true and one and only narrow gospel through Jesus Christ. Oh, by the way, I should summarize by saying, uh, maybe to help you a little more. Yeah, these were all imperatives and commands. These are things we do. That's not the whole story because God is sovereign. There is election. And I would say that every one of these commands, get this, this is probably the key. Every one of these commands that we're supposed to do is, guess what? It is a response to something God already initiated. That's the balance. Every one of these commands that we're called to do, repent, that's a response to something God's already revealed, his gospel. Or the conviction we felt through the conscience that he gave us at birth. So, yeah, we have to do something, but every response we do have that ends up in salvation is a response to something God has already initiated regarding the plan of salvation. Like believing, what's that? We don't just conjure up belief out of thin air in a vacuum. To believe that command, that is actually responding to the truth of the objective word of God that we've already heard. We thought about it. We processed it. God gave it to us. It came from him. He initiated it. And belief is a response to what he gave. So God is still sovereign. So in the mathematical equation, yes, God is first in the plan of salvation. And all these commands are a personal, volitional response to God the creator and God the savior. His plan, his message. So with that, let's go and look at uh, point two, and that is, or else. Strive for salvation now, or else it'll be too late later. It'll be too late when you breathe your last and die, which we've already mentioned. Or, I think Jesus is also clearly talking on a national level. He came as the Savior of the nation of Israel in fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. So he came to his people, the Jews. And for three years, what have they done for the most part? They've rejected him at every level. So this is a rebuke to the nation of Israel during Jesus' day. If you don't repent now, it's going to be too late as a nation in terms of all those national promises. God's going to cut off his promises temporarily and partially that he made through the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and other covenants that he made specifically to Israel because God promised he would chasten Israel if they didn't obey in Leviticus 26 and many other passages. And that's mainly what's going on here. Jesus primarily is talking to Jews, his own people, those who should have embraced him and crowned him as king. But they didn't. So he's talking to these Jews. He says, strive, struggle, fight, enter the narrow door. Don't go to the broad door. What's the broad door? Well, Judaism in his day of the scribes, the Pharisees, and Sadducees. It was works righteousness. That was the broad door. That was the easy thing. Just do what the Pharisees tell you. Just check the boxes. It's all shallow and superficial. It doesn't address the heart. That's easy religion. It'll damn you, but it's the broad road, and that's what most of them were doing. That's why he said strive. Don't go that way. Go the narrow way, the true way, my way, the hard way. Verse 24, strive to enter the narrow door for many, and I would say many after they die or many at the end of the age, and many many Jews, there's your many uh, who will not be saved. It's many Jews during the ministry of Jesus Christ. Many of the Jews. Uh, Lord, is it true that only a few will be saved? Yes, it is true that only a few Jews in this nation that I've preached to for three and a half years, only a few will be saved. That is true. That's part of his answer. Many, I tell you, will seek. They're not going to strive, but they will seek when it's too late, when they're dead, or at the end of the age. They will seek to enter into salvation. They will enter into the kingdom of God, yet they will not be able to. And then he goes on to say, well, why won't they be able to? And we talked about that last week. It's not because they're not elect. It's because they waited too long. They put it off. They didn't make the decision in this life. There's no second chance after you die. 
They will not be able to. And then he gives these illustrations, starting at verse 25. Once the head of the house, that would be Jesus, the judge, or God. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, that's the door of opportunity or salvation. This is when you die. It's when the door shuts. The door of salvation is open right now for anybody, as long as they're alive on earth. All they got to do is hear the gospel, repent, and believe. And they go through the door. They don't have to push the door open. They don't have to do any works righteousness to get through the door. It's come on in. Jesus did the work for you. Your job is to believe. But someday that door of opportunity will be shut. It's sad when you've got, especially a family member, a relative who you were witnessing to and praying for and, and just weeping over for years and years and years, and then they die not knowing Christ. That is, that is horrible. It's the saddest thing. It's the saddest reality. But that's here. The door has been shut. That's what he's talking about. Uh, the master gets up, shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside. These are unbelievers, and they're knocking on the door saying, this is just a frightening thought. They're uh, before the judge, the Lord Jesus Christ, after death, their souls and they are in torment, and they're crying and pleading for another chance. And Jesus said, no, it's too late. You're knocking on the door, banging on the door. Lord, open the door up for us. And then he, that's the Lord Jesus, the judge, he'll answer and say to them, I do not know where you're from. I don't know you. I don't know you. He said that already in Matthew 7, two years earlier. Matthew 7, 23 said, at the end of the age, many will come to me at the judgment and say, Lord, Lord. Did we not cast out demons in your name and do all kinds of miracles and prophesy? And the Lord Jesus says to many of them, and says, I never knew you. Now, Jesus is omniscient, so he knew that they existed. Actually, he knew everything about them. But he uses the word know in terms of intimacy. I didn't have an intimate personal relationship with you. That's how that word is used sometimes. I didn't know you personally. You were not one of mine. You didn't belong to me. It's the same usage of gnosko. Gnostic, G-N-O-S-T, knowledge, that's the word here. Know, to know. Adam knew, gnosko, Adam knew Eve and she conceived a child. Knew, to know, intimacy. God knows everything, Jesus knows everything, but here he said, I didn't know you personally, you weren't one of mine, it's too late. You didn't strive after me during the lifetime here when you had opportunity, it's too late. I don't know who you are, verse 26, and then they rebut. They're arguing with Jesus, the judge. Uh, And Jesus tells them, you know what? And then you're going to begin to say, well, we ate and we drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. These are the Jews. These are unbelieving Jews who actually, he's talking to those who knew him, saw his ministry, maybe even benefited from his ministry. They got free food, maybe some miracles. So they saw him, they were familiar with him. Maybe they went to his massive crowds where he taught, and they're going to start making up excuses of why they should be saved, of why they should be allowed to enter into the kingdom of God after they've died, and it's too late. Again, this is an individual level, but also uh, for the nation of Israel as well. And Jesus says, you know what? There's going to be a day when it's too late. After you die or the end of the age, they both are true, and you're going to want to get in, and the door is closed, and you're going to make up excuses, and you're going to... This is basically, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. You know what that is? That are, that's unbelieving Jews during the ministry of Jesus Christ who heard him teach, who saw him, who were in close proximity. They were around him by association, affiliation. And they say, oh, yeah, I remember you. Yeah, you, you taught in the synagogue. It, I, I lived in Nazareth, and I remember you teaching there. They're, they're pleading for salvation based on association. I'm a Jew. Well, I'm a descendant of Abraham. That's what they thought. All Jews get saved. Gentiles don't get saved. All Jews get saved. That's what the Pharisees believed. That was the dominant thought in the day when Jesus is talking. Salvation by association. Salvation by institution. Salvation by close proximity. Salvation by familiarity. We have that today, don't we? You're part of the club, the institution, then you're saved. I go to church, I'm saved. Oh, yeah, I go to that church. Yeah, I used to go to that church. I'm saved. Oh, my family, they're Christian. I'm saved. That's association. Jesus said, no, that's not good enough. You belong to a cult? That's what cults believe. Oh, I'm a part of this religion? I'm in. No, no, you're not. That's not how salvation works. 
It's not by association. It's not by family. It's not by groups. And that's what they're pleading for here. That's why Jesus got personal. It's about you. What about you? Are you striving? It's personal. That's what salvation is. It's not by association. It's not a corporate transaction. It's an individual decision. Salvation is through the turnstile, one at a time, case by case, soul by soul, before the the judge Jesus Christ. Did you believe in me? Oh, I was a Jew. I went to that church. No. So they're... Pleading is futile, too late. We saw you, we drank in your presence, you, you taught in our streets. And then Jesus will say, I tell you, I don't know where you're from, I don't know you, you don't belong, you're not one of mine, you're not one of my sheep. Depart from, and then he quotes Psalm 6, which he's quoted uh, many times before. Depart from me, all you evildoers. Depart from me, you wicked unbelievers. Depart from me. Depart from me where? We know from uh, Matthew 7 and Matthew 25, There's a fuller passage with the exact same terminology. Depart from me into eternal darkness. Depart from me into eternal hell. That's where where he's saying departing into. This is in the future. They're being consigned to eternal hell. Depart from me, you evildoers. You didn't believe in me. You didn't follow Christ. It was too late. Verse 28. And then Jesus goes on to elaborate what hell is like. Verse 20. He doesn't mention hell, but this is what he's talking about. In that place. What place? The place where people are... Departing to hell where people are cast by God. That's the word throw, cast. Verse 28, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said that six times in the Gospel of Matthew. That phrase, at the beginning of his ministry, the middle of his ministry, the end of his ministry, a part of his public teaching. It was a phraseology or an idiom they all understood. They believed that. The Jews believed in eternal hell. Isaiah, at the end of the book, talks about it. It's a conscious place. It is eternal It's physical torment, it's spiritual torment, it's emotional torment. It is deserved, it is righteous. It lasts forever. They understood this, and so that's where this phrase comes from. There in hell is typified by weeping and gnashing of teeth. That phrase goes together, used six times in the Gospel of Matthew, one time here, seven times in the Gospels by Jesus. And in your Greek text, the definite article is front of weeping, And also the definite article is in front of gnashing. So literally, you could read it as, in that place, there will be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. It's emphatic. The greatest weeping, the greatest gnashing, the final and definitive weeping and gnashing like you have never experienced in your life. Should this have been frightening to the audience listening? Absolutely. It's terrifying and it's true. Jesus is trying to woo them out of their slumber. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, uh, that phrase, thats and it's not just a, a generic phrase that doesn't mean anything. It's talking about eternal hell, and it's specific. The weeping is eternal emotional torment. Emotional torment can be one of the worst things we actually experience in this life. This is on a grand, infinite, eternal scale. E- e- emotional torment. What's the gnashing? That's physical torment. Matthew, uh, John chapter 5, Jesus said that at the end of the age, unbelievers will be raised in a resurrected body, a supernatural, divine resurrection body, and then consigned to hell with body and soul intact as a conscious human being. And they will be tormented forever and ever and ever in body and soul, which is represented here. Weeping, that's the emotional torment that will last forever. And then the gnashing, the physical torment that goes along with it. As thinking about it this way, I thought, okay, what, I think eternal hell is the hardest doctrine for me to just wrap my brain around as I was meditating on it this week. And it has been for a long time. And that's true for a lot of people. Some say it's the problem of evil. That, not for me. It's this one. It's reality. Can't water it down. Does the Bible teach a literal, conscious, eternal hell that is physical and emotional and deserved? Absolutely. Anybody that tries to water it down, don't believe them. They're lying. They're misrepresenting Scripture. We hear it all the time. Trying to tone it down, make it palatable. We do a disservice to the unbeliever when we distort the truth. Tell them the truth so they know. The Spirit of God will use that to convict them, woo them, draw them, bring them to repentance, and rescue them from hell. It's real. It's the good news. He's done all the work. 
weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then uh, just to clarify here at the end that can kind of be confusing, a parallel passage is Matthew 8 that might help you. In that place, in eternal hell, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. When you unbelievers at that time at the end of the age or in the next life, you will actually get to see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the prophets in the kingdom of God. So unbelievers in the next life will be able to see the saints in glory somehow. How does that work? I have no idea. But that will just increase the pain all the more. But that's what that's referring to. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the prophets in the kingdom of God. That's in the next life, in blessedness, in glory, with God the Father, Yahweh, Jesus, the Spirit, the saints, and the angels for the ages. But you yourself, you'll be able to see it. You'll be able to see what you're missing. But you'll be cast out. You Jews will be cast out of the kingdom. The Jews thought they were in the kingdom. The Jews were promised the kingdom. You will be cast out. You're citizens of the kingdom, but your citizenship will be revoked. Verse 29. And they will come. So you will be cast out, the Jews, for not believing. That's 28. But... So the few will be saved, the Jews in Jesus' day, but many will be saved. So that's the second part of the question. That's verse 29. And they, who's that, Gentiles? Gentiles will come from east and west, from north and south. What does that mean? All over, too many to count. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands. And now it's been 2,000 years of Gentiles being saved from all over the world so that heaven is being populated like you can't even imagine. Thousands and thousands. Who's been saved and who's in heaven? Myriads upon myriads, says the book of Revelation. Myriads. Countless. Will many people be saved? Absolutely. There's the answer right there. For thousands of years, Jesus has been saving Gentiles. They will come from east and west, from north and south, and they will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. Verse 30, and behold, some are last who will be first, that's the Gentiles. The Gentiles who didn't even have the promises of God, who didn't even have the means for salvation, nor his covenants, that's, what, that's who the last are here. Amazingly, by God's grace, many of them are going to be saved. And that really started happening with the birth of the church, and then the last part of verse 30, and those, and behold, some are last who will be first, and some who are first will be last. That's the Jews. Those primarily are the people that Jesus, the Jews that Jesus came to, to declare himself, I am your Messiah. And wholesale, the entire nation rejected him. And then he says, you know what? You were first, you had the privileges, now you're last. And not just last in line to get into heaven, you're out. You're out, that's what that means. What a rebuke. Keep in mind, we don't know how many people were in the audience, but that audience was nothing but Jews. And this is a specific rebuke to the Jews and the audience, most of whom who have been rejecting their Messiah month by month, year by year. And Jesus' message is, you know what? There's a sense of urgency. You need to repent before it's too late. That's a good message for us to share at Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this this morning and Already we've had fellowship, no doubt many encouraging words among the saints, uh, the teaching of your word that we can meditate upon together, singing to you um, as we are trusting your spirit and being led by your spirit. We want to be filled up by you, Lord. That's your promise to your children on the Lord's, Lord's day as we gather with the saints. Thank you for that great gift. Uh, Lord, use the truth from Jesus' ministry here about striving and not delaying. First, to examine our own hearts to make sure we are right with you. And if we aren't, that we would be proactive in sharing the truth of the gospel to everyone that we know that is not saved. And we do pray for, starting with those we know, those in our immediate family who are not saved, as it, it breaks our heart. We know you're going to continue to work on their hearts with your Holy Spirit to convict, to soften, to woo. And we just pray in your grace that it would penetrate. They would bow the knee. They would embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. What a, a glorious thing that is every time we see it happen.
And we just pray that that's a reality in a unique and special and memorable way this Christmas. And we commit all this to you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.